Thank you so much, Dan, and wonderful time of singing. Come to the study of God's Word, and as you know, we are with Jesus Christ in the school of prayer, and so we're in Luke's Gospel, chapter 11. And we are looking at just the first four verses of the 11th chapter of Luke, where the Lord is answering a disciple's request to teach the disciple to pray. And the things that we've been gleaning from this have been absolutely rich, and I'm sure have already begun to affect the way you think in your prayer life. You remember this is a pattern of prayer. This is Jesus' way of saying, look, when you pray, there are themes, redemptive themes and overarching themes. We might even use the analogy of an undercurrent that, that is underneath, and then even permeation, just using, again, that analogy, this ought to be what permeates your prayer life as you talk to God, as you commune to God, in a variety of circumstances and and burdens that you take before Him. There are redemptive themes that course their way through our prayer life. And hopefully, you're already beginning to see a change in the way you think, not only about prayer, but just what you pray about, what you what you have on your heart, how it filters through these marvelous themes. It was this way because there were disciples all around Jesus and he was filled in his life with times of prayer and they saw that and you remember back at the beginning of the study that there grew in obviously this disciple and probably the others a longing to pray like Jesus. And so what Jesus gives here are are the themes that really ought to be on our minds and on our hearts and weaving their way through the things that we commune with God about. We've already covered the first two, and, and then there's a shift in this wonderful pattern of prayer. You go from this wonderful vertical expression that we've been looking at, these things that we say to God and about God, to all of a sudden the, the, the needs that we have, the petitions we take before God for the things that we need. You remember I said there were, you you could frame this up in five redemptive themes, the first two we've covered. The first is worship. Father, hallowed be your name. When he had said it earlier on the hillside, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. This is an expression of intimacy as we saw. This is an expression of worship that says, Lord, you vindicate your name. There's intimacy in saying, Father, hallowed be your name because there's no barrier There is transparency because there's no secrets between us and God. And there's great security because I don't fear. In Christ, I'm forgiven. I can go right to the throne of grace. I don't need a a human advocate. I don't need a go-between. I don't need some person in some priestly garment to be my representative, my mediator. I have Christ. He's ushered me into the presence of God. I can talk to God today, right now, anytime. No fear. And to say, hallowed be your name, we saw was a, was a way of saying, Lord, you vindicate your name. I come to you with no arguments against you. I come to you not putting you on trial. I come to adore you, to call out your perfections with praise, to acknowledge your goodness, and to say to you that whatever's going on in my life, I know your character is intact. Mine may not be, the world's may not be, but you do not change. There's no shifting shadow in you. So whatever I don't like about my life that I'm bringing before you, you're not on trial. 
hallowed be your name. You're separate from human beings in that grand sense. And then we saw that second redemptive theme last time, the Lordship of Christ. Verse 2, your kingdom come. <clears throat> it should be that our prayer life is more and more driven by the higher purpose and the deeper longing, not for what is here, but for what is to come. We're to set our minds on things above, not on things of the earth. When we say, your kingdom come, we are saying, Lord, vindicate your name, magnify your glory and your sovereignty, come in your kingdom, bring judgment to anyone who rejects you, take up your rightful throne, reign forever, and even crush Satan, reverse the curse, get rid of sin totally and ultimately. You've dealt the death blow. You've made sin powerless over your people. But now come in your kingdom and completely rid your universe of it. That's what you're saying when you say your kingdom come. We also saw, though, that when Jesus gave this on the hillside, Matthew records that he said, your kingdom come, your will be done. So embedded in the call for his kingdom to come is this idea of his will ruling and reigning. And so getting really close to home and stepping on our toes a bit, when you pray, Lord, come to the earth, reign in your kingdom, you're also saying, I want your will done in my life right now today. I want to love your will. I want to love your commands. I want to obey them. I want to know them deeply. I want to humbly tremble at them. I want to have my spiritual senses trained. I want to joyfully agree with them. When I open the scriptures, I want it to show me wonderful things from your law, but I also want my heart to just Im immediately begin to soften and become pliable and come underneath it in the sweetness of the instruction of truth. Oh, our hearts, in our flesh, we rail against that. But God wants to change that, bring you to the place where you, you say, your kingdom come. And Lord, whatever part of your will I can reflect here on earth right now, do it. Make it happen in my life. As I said, we come now to this great shift in this pattern of prayer, to the petitions side of it. So far, it's been all focused on the character of God and and our relationship to Him, and our longing for the earth to be filled with His purposes and His will. And now Jesus teaches us that prayer is not just a vertical expression of worship, but it is full of petitions, requests. I get to tell God what's on my heart in the form of petitions. This is amazing. Now, there's to be a grateful dependence and these petitions as a pattern in your prayer will work a work of dependence in your life? It will. Because it, at least at first says, Lord, you have to supply our needs. Notice what the text says in verse 3. Give us each day our daily bread. We're going to try to cover all these petitions this morning. But the first here is what we are putting under the heading of leadership. This is the Lord's leadership in our life. This is the Lord meeting our needs intimately as our leader, as our daily master. Give us each day our daily bread. The literal original language says, our daily bread give us throughout each day. It's interesting. It's an extremely rare word 
And it's only used here and in Matthew's recording of Jesus saying what he wanted to say about prayer there on the hillside in the Sermon on the Mount. So it's only used by Jesus in these two places. This particular verbal idea, among the possible meanings, you see it translated in front of you, daily bread. The bread necessary for existence would be another way to sort of describe this idea. But it also includes the idea of bread for the following day in a continuing fashion. So some translators have translated it, give us our daily bread for tomorrow, our daily bread for the future. Some scholars have even translated it that way, give us the bread of tomorrow today. Because they believe that the verse has the idea of asking God not only for our daily needs, but also as well as the needs of tomorrow, and, and not so much in a list, but just, Lord, continue them. Continue to meet our needs every day, like you're meeting them today. Meet them today and make it today's needs met for the sake of the fact that you're going to come back tomorrow and meet those needs. Tomorrow's on the mind, or so some scholars believe. While I don't deny the idea has some merit, especially given the fact that there's redemptive themes in all of this, eternal eternities in view in your prayer life, probably the clearest way to translate the phrase is simply this. Give us, throughout each day, our bread sufficient for the day. That would be a, almost a literal conveyance of what's there. Give us, throughout each day, our bread sufficient for the day. Jesus expands the idea here when he was talking on the sermon, in the Sermon on the Mount, give us this day our daily bread. Here in his teaching on prayer, he expands it, give us the day-to-day bread. Give us throughout each day our bread sufficient for the day. So throughout each day in the future and today, the bread sufficient for this day. We could, we could sort of frame it up this way. Meet our needs for each day continually, especially our most basic provision. Now, what thrills me about this is that there's no, un, there's no sophisticated tone here. You don't have to get sophisticated. There's no fancy language. There's no high theology involved. There's not a careful list crafted and edited to perfection to go before God with. It's simply the expression of a thankful heart and a dependent heart asking God each day for the day's provision and that that provision would continue throughout the day, and that that provision would connect today's provision with tomorrow's provision, so that in our hearts and minds there's not a single moment when we're not under the watch care of a heavenly Father who meets our every need. What ought to be coursing through your heart and mind in your prayer life is this growing sense that you come before God for everything You don't even have to list everything out. You're just saying meet our needs today. And in meeting them today, think about how in meeting them, there's going to be a tomorrow. And Lord, watch over the details. I love that. I said to you at the end of last week that the first words are very important. Give us. Give us. What what is this admitting? It's admitting that I I don't bring anything to the table. I can't do this. Jesus' pattern of prayer compels our hearts in the direction of dependence because we will inevitably take it for granted. To be in prayer thanking God for basic provisions, 
and to ask him to continue to provide them in his grace, it does some things to you. I can think of three immediate things it does in my own heart, and it ought to do it in your heart. First of all, it prevents forgetfulness. Man, if you, if you think about every day this theme that ought to start weaving its way through mature prayers, you're not going to easily then forget if it becomes the habit of your heart and mind. You know how it is. How sickening to our stomach we get when, when we've gone a day and haven't even asked the Lord or thanked the Lord for anything. And yet, what has he done all day long? He hasn't left us. He's near. He's watching. He's meeting needs. This is why some studies on prayer say you need to get up in the morning and you need to have these expressions. Why? Because you're going to forget otherwise. Another thing this does is it prevents ingratitude. Oh, we can be so ungrateful, so obtuse, so detached, so full of ourselves. And then... You know, all day long God meets our needs, and so we get so used to it, we don't thank Him for it, and then when somehow something drops out of the bottom and something isn't what we expected because we've always had it, what do we do? How could you? We immediately move to ingratitude. God is so gracious in His kind providences that when His grace meets us, in a frowning providence, we complain and are ungrateful. I'll tell you what else it does. Maybe most importantly, it prevents self-sufficiency. Self-sufficiency. Turn to Deuteronomy 8 for a moment. Deuteronomy chapter 8, and we won't have time to cover all of it, but you, you just have to see this, and you ought to read it often. It ought to be emblazoned on your mind. I remember early in my Christian life coming across this text and I have turned to it again and again and again because it is humbling. And God had told his people when they entered the land, I need you to remember some things. I need you to set up reminders because you are going to become ungrateful, self-sufficient. You are going to become forgetful if you do not listen Verse 1 of chapter 8, all the commandments I'm commanding you today, you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land which the Lord swore to give to your forefathers. And you shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you'd keep his commandments or not. That's why the Lord wants us going before him every day. It's it's a constant testing and a squeezing and a refining of our hearts so we don't forget. Notice, verse 3, He humbled you and let you be hungry, and He fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know that He might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of God. There it is. You go before God at the beginning of the day because God has to provide it, the physical and the spiritual, all of it. Verse 4, your clothing did not wear out on you, nor did your foot swell these 40 years. Thus you are to know in your heart that the Lord your God was disciplining you just as a man disciplines his son. Therefore you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God to walk in his ways and to fear him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks, of water, of fountains and springs flowing forth in valleys and hills a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive oil and honey. And the imagery would have meant heritage and family and estates and passing on of 
all of those things. Verse 9, a land where you'll eat food without scarcity, no famine, in which you will not lack anything. What? A land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper. But verse 10, when you have eaten and are satisfied, you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land which he's given you. Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his ordinances and his statutes which I'm commanding you today. Otherwise, when you've eaten and are satisfied and have built good houses and lived in them, and when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and gold multiply and all that you have multiplies, then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out from the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. Notice verse 16, in the wilderness he fed you manna which your fathers didn't know and he, he might, that he might humble you and test you to do good for you in the end. Otherwise you may say in your heart, my power and the strength of my hand made this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God for it is he who is giving you power to make wealth. 19, it shall come about if you ever forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them. I testify against you today, you will surely perish. You see, we have a problem. Without this theme coursing through our prayers and our minds and our hearts, we'll forget. James gave a New Testament reminder in James chapter 4, verse 13 to 17. Come, all of you who say today or tomorrow we're going to go to such and such city. Spend a year there. Engage in business. Make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You're just a vapor. You appear for a little while and then you vanish away. Here's what you ought to say instead. If the Lord wills, we will live and we'll do this or that. Anything else, anything less is boasting, he says. You could get to the point where you've gone years without even a fleeting thought that it is God who supplies your needs. And I know how it works. You learn a skill. You go get a job. You earn a paycheck. You, you use those resources to buy food and clothing and shelter at whatever level you're able. And you then take classes and you get educated and you get more skilled with each day and month and year so that you get better at what you do and in the free market of our country or wherever you live, there are ways that that bears fruit because God in his common grace allows it. And then you go to the market and you put up the resources and you see it come out of your pocket and your bank account. You've accumulated the resources there and you assess the need and you supply what is necessary to meet the need out of what you've earned. And when you have eaten the fruit of it, you're satisfied with the outcome. And you trace a line, not vertically, but horizontally back to your abilities and back to your effort. You know, Agur feared that very thing. In one of my favorite Proverbs, in Proverbs 30, Agur prays to God, and it's, I just love what he prays. Lord, give me only my portion. <laughs> That's what he prays. Don't give me too little that I might be in a season where I'm tempted to sin against you by stealing, but please don't give me beyond my portion because I may forget you. 
he says. Feed me with the food that's my portion, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Wow. You're not to be anxious. Your Father in heaven knows you need these things. But Jesus says as a pattern, you're to be dependent and, and say, Lord, what I need today, supply it because I know you must. You give it to us. And what my tomorrow's need, use today's supply to connect to tomorrow's supply and all the days until you come and my hunger and my thirst are completely satisfied and quenched. Give us this day and throughout the day that which is sufficient. It is to be a regular part of our prayer life. You know, when we pray over meals, sometimes that's sort of that one place where, where it's obvious what we tend to do. We tend to get into rote kinds of things. But I, 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 I want to be reminded, even at something as simple and short as a prayer over a meal, that this is your provision, God. You provide the transcendent needs of all your people over the globe, and yet you care about my family so that groceries got to the table and we're able to sit down and say thank you for this little provision because you care about my physical needs? I want to remember that. I want to do better at that. The Lord leads in our life. Our prayer life ought to reflect worship and lordship and the daily mastering and leadership of our Lord over our life. It's a dependence that comes to him with that petition. Fourth petition, the fourth redemptive theme, second petition really in this text is in verse four. And Jesus says, I want you to pray like this, forgive us our sins for we ourselves also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. We put this under the redemptive theme of fellowship. Fellowship. Why fellowship? Because, and some have thought, well, if I'm in Christ and I'm redeemed and I've been forgiven in eternity, I don't need to seek God's forgiveness for anything. I'm already saved. Look, in your justification, that's true. You don't need to be forgiven in order to be justified a second time. Once repentant, once drawn to Christ in faith, you give your life to him, you're covered with his righteousness, you are forgiven in eternity, positionally. You are acceptable before God, you're in Christ, he sees you through his son and through the righteous covering of his son, you will never be condemned. If you die having not ask God for some forgiveness of a sin, it's not going to affect you in eternity insofar as your justification and your acceptability. You are with God. You will receive the inheritance. He will say to every one of his children, well done. He will. And here Jesus teaches disciples. So clearly he's talking about believers. So why then does he say that we are to seek forgiveness from God and then ask that that be reflected or affirm that it is reflected in our life toward other people. Why that? Fellowship. Not eternal fellowship, but intimate daily fellowship. As I told you before, when my kids would sin against me, they don't cease to be my children. I love them. 
Nothing changes in that arena. They're in absolute family fellowship with their father. But when they sin against me, there's a severing of the sweetness and the joy we have until they acknowledge having harmed their relationship with God by sinning against others and they shouldn't sin against others. And so there's a fellowship issue here that courses through our prayers as well. Matthew 6, when Jesus said it on the mountainside, Matthew records that he said, forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. It's true, sin is a debt. We owe someone when we offend them. Jesus paid everything we owed to the God of the universe so that positionally we, we owe nothing. He's paid the debt. The only thing we owe is love to him and devotion to him out of gratitude and he's our master We've been bought with a price. But when we sin against one another, there's a debt. Even when we sin against God on a daily basis by either sinning against one another or in the secret sins of our mind and heart toward God, even that is a debt to that intimacy. We've got to go before God as Jesus illustrated to Peter when he took the basin and the towel and washed his feet. Every day you need a little bit of washing on your feet. You've got to have the, the stuff of the day cleaned off so that there's nothing severing that, that great intimate fellowship you have with God. We could say it this way. Your conscience is clear. This is the clearing of the conscience. In Mark's Gospel, chapter 11, verse 25, and whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive your transgressions. What does that mean? That the Father forgives us based upon our treatment of other people. He's willing to draw near to us and restore that relationship. But look, if you're unwilling to forgive other people, if you're unwilling to make things right with other people, you can't be right with God in that intimate sense. You're not going to remember everything that you've done and every offense, but the, that which you're convinced of and know you confess to God, forgive us. Forgive us. Forgiving each other just as God in Christ also has forgiven you, Ephesians 4. Forgiving each other, whomever has a complaint against anyone just as the Lord forgave you, Colossians 3. Go back to the sixth chapter of Luke for a moment. You remember when we studied the sixth chapter of Luke, that marvelous statement about God and mercy and notice verse 35 of Luke 6, but love your enemies and do good and lend and expect nothing in return and your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High for he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. So when the disciples says, teach us to pray, Jesus says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to come before your heavenly Father with your debts on your mind, your daily debts, the debts that have caused you to have some distance between you and your heavenly Father because you've not acknowledged it. There's, there are things on your conscience. I want your prayer to involve confession of your own sins against God. And you be specific, Lord, I... 
I neglected you today. Lord, I, I, I cultivated and nurtured that craving that's sinful. Lord, I complained against you today. Lord, I, I, I wasn't mindful of your truth. Lord, when I had an opportunity to have courage, I, I didn't have courage. The Spirit of God will bring those things to mind. Whatever you don't know about, whatever you aren't aware of, you wait on the Lord for those things. But those things that you're aware of, there is to be a sensitivity in your prayer life to where you're at before the Lord in your conscience. Where am I at, oh God, with you? Is my conscience clear? Have I cleared it up? Have I truly repented? Have I, have I known the sweet intimacy that comes from the, the liberated heart, having come to you and said, Yes, I did that. Yes, I wasn't what I needed to be. I loved you today, but never enough. And I noticed ways that I didn't love you and just loved myself. And I said harsh things to my kids or my spouse. And I, I stole something at work or I wasn't faithful with my time or never even thought of you, God, today. Didn't pray. Is that something to confess? In your prayer? <laughs> I didn't pray. I love that. Notice also what he says here. Forgive us our sins, for we all ourselves also forgive everyone who's indebted to us. It may, it may look as though we're, we're sort of earning God's forgiveness by forgiving others. No, that's not the expression. Even in the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus said this, it was forgive us our debts as we forgive others. The point is, you evidence a right relationship and fellowship with the Father when it is reflected in your mercy toward others, as it is reflected in your forgiveness of others. Now, listen, in the Scriptures, you can't have a clearer litmus test than that as to where your heart's at with God. When you won't forgive, you are not right in your walk with God in that moment. You are not. How, how clear can that get? Now, is it going to be easy? Oh, you're right. I, I, I don't have a walk with God. I'm not forgiving. I'll just flip a switch. No. No, you won't. And when you do go before God with brokenness and say, I wasn't forgiving, and therefore you were not in an intimate walk with me because I was regarding sin in my heart, Psalm 66, and so you couldn't even hear my, my heart and my prayers because I was holding something against someone else, but I forgive them and I'm, a, I'm seeking your forgiveness. When you do that, even after that, forgiveness is an ongoing work. It's ongoing. It requires prayer and softness. But it is still a warning. If God himself is, un, is kind to ungrateful and evil men, then you're to be like your heavenly father. You know how you do this on a practical level? When you pray, never forget an opportunity to build a particular habit in your thought life. The habit is this, to always remember that God saved you out of nothing. In your prayer life, it must become the habit of your mind and heart to go there every time. Lord, I'm praying because you saved me out of nothing. I can ask for needs to be met because you purchased me from the slave market of my own sin. You adopted me into your eternally blessed family and you gave me privileges as a joint heir with Christ. I deserve none of it. Your son was killed for my sake. I have no personal entitlements. 
I'm nothing. And yet you, you said live. And because you told me to live and you regenerated my heart, I, I must know that you're a forgiving God and so I must reflect that in my behavior toward other people. Confession and mercy are essential to a healthy communion with God. It should become regular in your life. It'll soften your world. You think like that every time you pray, it will crush your pride. It will own you. It will corner you. It'll put you up against the wall. It will make you face your own sin. It will make you face the ugliness of holding things against people when you had no right. It'll force you to passages that absolutely crush your pride. You'll find your mind and heart being driven to Romans 2, verse 4. Do you think lightly of the kindness of God? It is His kindness and forbearance and patience that leads you to repentance. You'll remember James 2.13. Judgment will be merciless to those who show no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment and your heart will, will come to another place of softness. And you'll be reminded of parables that the Lord himself taught like Matthew 18 when the king said, you wicked slave, I canceled all of the debt of yours because you begged me to and I had mercy on you. Shouldn't you have had compassion on your fellow servants for debts that are nothing comparable? I love that. Such a help to your prayer life, beloved. Don't be thankless. God is merciful to ungrateful and evil men. Thankless men, that's the term in Luke 6. Something has been found that's been received and enjoyed for which there should obviously be an appropriate expression of thankfulness and there's not. Look, we're most like the world when we are not going before God and thanking Him for His forgiveness and making sure our conscience is clear and then forgiving all those who have offended us. We're more like the world when we do that. I mean, the world breathes it's breath God gave them. They don't thank Him for a moment of it. All the profound realities of being in God's common grace. Man, crowned with glory and majesty. Pagans, people who hate God, crowned with His glory and His majesty as the highest of creation, made in His image. Man enjoys reasoning capabilities. They experience emotion. They bear the marks of the creator himself. They see the wonder of love and compassion, the communicable attributes that are, that are put into the image of God and man, which we reflect. Man experiences knowledge, wisdom, achievement, fulfillment, family, community, society. They rule over things. They, do, they have dominion. We enjoy expansion and industry and material wealth and generational blessing. We love the sanctity of human life because God made it so. We enjoy protection, preservation, security. In the best of societies, there's all of that and more. Beauty and art and science and sociology and history and memory. And man takes it all in, says nothing to God, and yet God is kind. What does he want from his people? When you pray, he wants a clear conscience. 
And so that the redemptive work of forgiveness in you before God begins to reflect itself toward anyone, everyone. That'll change your prayer life. Doesn't matter. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So, be warned. Jesus warned in Matthew 7, for in the way you judge, you're going to be judged. And by the standard of measure, it'll be measured to you. You decide God's daily verdict on your life. You decide how much kindness and compassion flows to you as it should and could in Christ based upon whether or not you're willing to be merciful to others. And our prayer life is to be filled with forgiveness, filled with redemption, filled with humbling, filled with brokenness, even filled with tears that just rush over you to think about what God gave to you. And so we're, we're to have a prayer life that courses through the worship of our God and the lordship of Christ over his people and over our will and the masterful leadership of the Lord to meet our needs and then the sweet fellowship that is to be maintained. And finally, in verse 4, Jesus teaches us all about guardianship. Oh, we need to be guarded. Look at verse 4, and lead us not into temptation. You say, well, that sounds awfully strange. Well, I can tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that God leads us into the enticements that exploit our weakness and eventually result in sin. James chapter 1, verse 13 makes that impossible. Let no one say when he is tempted, that is to say when the test comes and his faith is weak and the weak faith is exploited and he ends up in sin. Let no one say when that kind of test comes that he is tempted by God for God himself cannot be tested or tempted by evil and he himself does not tempt anyone. God doesn't tempt you to evil. He doesn't bring the evil to your heart that, that causes you to sin. He does not do such things. I'll tell you something else. Nor does this verse mean that God will keep you from all trials and tests that you and I need to strengthen our faith. You're not praying, Lord, no tests, no trials, ever. That would be like praying, Lord, I don't care to have any strengthened faith or endurance. Just leave me in my corner till Jesus comes. You wouldn't want to do that because it honors and glorifies God every time you face a test and the real faith, the real genuine stuff comes to the surface that God shows himself faithful. You don't want to reduce Jesus' glory, do you, in every act of faith? So it's not an assumption that God leads us into those things that crush or snuff out faith or cause us to sin, nor is it a prayer to remove us from the things we desperately need. And I know that's the temptation. The church in our culture We've been so superficially taught and it's left us spiritually soft and so we do spend a lot of time complaining to God about how hard it is to face the spiritual tests of the day and then you pick up some Puritan work on the life of Christopher Love and you see his children holding hands with their mother while he has walked to the chopping block and he says to his wife and his children, stand strong, and they're saying to, his, to their father, stay strong, and he goes and has his head lopped off for the faith. We read that and we put it down and we say, that's fantasy. I could never be like that. 
That's because we're soft. Why are we soft? Yeah. Tests and trials are hard. We acknowledge that. It's certainly common to share the difficulty of them with God and right to do so. But if we're not careful, beloved, if we're not alert, we can actually get to the point where we're pining away, listen, for an earthly life without the pain of saying no so that we have the glory and honor due to Christ for saying yes to truth. It's not going to happen. You're not going to have a life free of trial and test. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, it's common to man and God is faithful who won't allow you to be tempted beyond your ability to endure. James 1, 2 to 4, count it all joy. Why? Because the testing of your faith produces endurance. 2 Corinthians 12, Paul said, when I'm weak, then I'm strong. If the Lord himself went through testing to learn obedience through the fires of it so that he might believe his heavenly Father and depend upon him, you can't imagine a Christian life where our path is going to be any different than that. So what does this mean to pray, lead us not into temptation? And even what's embedded in that is what Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount, but deliver us from evil. What does it mean? I'll illustrate it, and then our time is gone. Look at John 18. I'll illustrate what it means from John's Gospel, chapter 18. I love this. Jesus is in the garden, as you know. Verse 3. <laughs> Judas then, having received the Roman cohort and officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. And so Jesus, knowing all the things that were coming upon him, he went forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus the Nazarene, and he said to them, I am he. And Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing with them. And so when he'd said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Therefore, he again asked them, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus the Nazarene. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these go their way. Notice verse 9. To fulfill the word which he spoke of those whom you have given me, I lost not one. In order to fulfill the promise that when God gives a believer to the Son, to His Son, when He gives an elect soul to His Son, grants them faith and repentance, brings them into the family, and they are now helped and encouraged and strengthened and kept by the Father so that no one can snatch them out of the Lord's hands. When someone is given by the Father to the Son, God protects them. And here were some disciples about to face something. Something that would inevitably, in that moment, at their level of maturity, just crush their faith, snuff it out. They'd lose their faith. They'd lose it. They'd be found in apostasy. At the beginning of your Christian life, God doesn't just dispense upon you some faith and then leave it there. He strengthens it, grows it, and sustains it because he promises to keep it and hold it until glory 
Paul said it, I am convinced and persuaded. So this trust that he's given to me that I pass to other men, the faith I have and the faith that they have, the gospel they believe, I'm convinced and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed to him until that day. He holds it. He sustains it. I can't know the millions upon billions of times that the Lord has protected me from an experience that would have literally apostatized me. I can't know, but he has. And here you have him doing it right here in the garden because you remember how pathetic they were when they boasted, even if you have to die, we will go with you and I will die with you. And all the apostles said, yes, Peter's right. We're with him. We'll do it. And he even said to them, the Lord even said to them, are you able to drink the cup that I'm able to drink? You know what they said? Absolutely. You're you're our Lord. We'll drink it. And he said, you will drink a cup. <laughs> but not till you're ready, not till I've made you ready, not till I've made your faith ready. Beloved, there's such a sweetness in that when you pray, Lord, lead us not into temptation because you're praying, Lord, keep me away from that which would absolutely destroy my faith. Sustain me, guard me, protect me, hem me in, and I know you will, but I, he wants us to express the knowledge that he will and to acknowledge the promise of it and his faithfulness in it. And you know what? You get reminded because when you start praying like that, you look back on even a week, maybe even a day, and you see it. You see God doing it. Oh, you, you protected me from that. Oh, I would have been weak. I know I could deny you, Lord, to the point of apostasy if it wasn't you protecting and guarding my faith because nothing can snatch me out of your hand and nothing can separate me from your love. And here he was with the disciples. He didn't want to lose any of them. (laughs) He had to practically protect them. You want me? I've said I am he. That's official. You came here to officially arrest me. Let these go their way. Why? Because if they had walked in chains where Jesus was about to go into the courtyard, they would have all done what Peter did when he didn't even have a chain around his neck. The strongest of them all said, ah, I don't even know the man. Even with curse words. There was no chain around his neck, just the threat of it. If they had been led like a lamb to the slaughter they would not have been silent before their shearers. They would have recanted as fast as they could recant to save their own skin. And so would you and I if the Lord didn't preciously protect us from tests we cannot bear yet. Don't you think that what you're going through is too much because God would never threaten to see you apostatize. Never. But deliver us from evil, he said. Keep us from the evil one. I pray that more and more the older I get in Christ. Lord, keep me from the evil one. And lead me not into the temptations. You know I'm already too weak to bear. Look, beloved, start admitting it in your prayers. Don't come with some sort of boast that you're somebody. Don't come with some trophy case that says, you know, I got a few weaknesses I have to tell you, but man, I've been doing pretty well. Just 
Just give all that to Christ. Lay it at his feet. If there's ever a victory, it's his anyway. Just come to him and say, Lord, lead me not into that which would snuff my faith out. And I would defame you. I would profane you. I wouldn't make it. You know what I need. And even now, you are my intercessor before the Father. Hey, protect Jerry. Protect him from that. There's going to be persecution, but it cannot be more than his faith is strong enough to bear. So, Father, guard him. And even so, he prays now, lead him not into temptation. Father, guard them. Guard him. Answer that prayer. There's such sweet Trinitarian intimacy as you pray these things. Is that your prayer life? When Jesus teaches us to pray and gives us a pattern, are these redemptive themes touch points in your prayer life? Or, or does the aroma of them need to be stronger? To worship, to acknowledge his lordship, to petition him because he has leadership and mastery in your life and to want intimate fellowship with a clear conscience and then to plead with him, Lord, keep me from that which would would absolutely remove me or separate me from your sweet and precious love and provision. Whatever else you pray about, however else you pray, you let your petitions be made known to God and you let it calm your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. Philippians 4 says, however you come with tears or joy for long periods of time, short periods of time, ask your Lord and Master by his Spirit to begin to mature your prayer life so that it touches on and courses through and weaves around these redemptive themes. It'll change your walk with Christ. Amen? Bow with me. Oh, Father, there's so much we could say about these things and we could take a separate study of each of them. But embed these truths in our hearts that we've been studying these last three weeks. And then take them by your Spirit. And as you've shed your love abroad in our hearts, just explode these truths to every corner of our inner life. Spread the truth of redemption throughout our thoughts and our affections and our desires, our longings. Make us pray differently, more humbly, more comprehensively, more frequently and more gratefully. Fill our prayers with truth that's deep and rich, even if, even if peppered with all of our little requests that you ask us to give. May we begin with that intimate worship or end with that intimate worship, or just worship all the way through it. May we always vindicate your name and hallow your goodness. May we come with a heart of dependence that softens as we go, asking for the daily and continual privilege and thanking you for it. And Lord, may we never harbor anything that might keep us separate from you in that intimate, sweet walk we have with you with a clear conscience. 
We know we can't think of everything. You'll bring those things to light in time. And even when our conscience is clear, we're not by this acquitted. For you know it all. Even in that, there's more humbling. And oh God, protect our faith, grow our faith, preserve us. We know that every step of our day there's a thousand threats that if you weren't there to sustain us, if you weren't there to protect us, we surely would be lost. We'd be idol worshipers as we were before, but you've granted us faith, you've opened our eyes, and you promised to sustain us. It's so sweet that you want that a part of our prayer life. The thing that we already know is true, that you will preserve us and that we can't be lost. You want it a part of our requests, our petition, to lead us not into things that would cause us to be lost. It's an acknowledgement of your power and your love and your exclusive work to guard our faith. And so all through each of these redemptive themes, Lord, we, we are put in our rightful place and you in yours. Teach us to pray like this. And we ask it in consistency with all that you are. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, and by the power of your Spirit. Amen. Been a good study. Stand if you will. Let's be dismissed. And uh, if you're a guest with us, thanks for being with us. Just a rich time. If you want to know what our church is about, you can, you can know it from a service here or you can go to the, any one of a number of Bible studies across the campus this next hour, just before the 12 o'clock hour. Do that. Uh, meet some people. It's a little closer range, a little smaller contexts. And uh, we'd love to be a ministry to you. At the 12 o'clock hour, if you can be with us, you come back to the lobby, you, you'll be guided by some signs over to the office center. I'd love to greet you. Just say hello, quick hello. Tonight, if you can be with us at 6 o'clock, all of you, it's, we're just going to sing. And we love to do that, and the music ministry has prepared a night of it, so we're going to read scripture and sing. So come, let's lift the roof off as we love to do, and, uh, and we'll be encouraged and edified in it. Six o'clock, if you could be with us, Lord bless you.